We are blessed that uh, some of our young people are able to be at the Tikkun Emerging Leaders Conference this weekend in Kansas City. Um, so that's, that is awesome. Really glad that they're able to be there. I look forward to hearing what the Lord does there um, while they're there this weekend. Today, today we are going to continue my previous message. Um, so I'm, I'm on this uh, series of messages where we're highlighting, bringing out, drawing out the way that God establishes relationship and establishes himself and his presence with his creation, with people, okay? So we went through the book of Genesis, all the way through the book of Genesis last time, um, and today we're going to go all the way through the book of Exodus. We're not going to read it all, but we're going to go all the way through it. So just to kind of recap some of the things that we highlighted last time, as we talked about God's smiling face, that, that joyfulness, that joy that we feel, that we experience when we know that God the Father is smiling upon us. His face is looking upon us with joy, with joy himself, and we feel that joy, and we feel it, and we love it because God designed us that way. He created us to want this, to desire this joy. And he created us, he designed us to be in relationship with him. Okay, this, we covered this last time. We, covered, we talked about the Hebrew word panim. What does it mean? Do you guys remember? What does it refer to? The, your face, right? It's, it's, it's not just God's face, right? It's, it's kind of a gener general term, but it's anatomically referring to your face that you can express emotions with, that you can express reactions to. But in Scripture, it's constantly talking about God's face, the face of the Lord, and how it's His face shining upon us. Panim, it's, it's the way that He helps to establish relationship with us when he looks at us, when he smiles upon us. And we can do this with each other too, right? When we establish relationship with each other, our face is so key to it. We talked about how God made himself and his face known to man in a very real and spatial way. Like he was very much there in the Garden of Eden. He was there physically there, first with Adam and Eve. He was there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, we, look, we, we kind of walked all the way through that. And so we're going to talk today about the book of Exodus the, and how the theme of this, and I'll posit to you that the theme of the entire book of Exodus is one theme, and that theme is that the presence of the Lord, God dwelling in the midst of his people, in the midst of Israel, that he rescued from Egypt. That's the theme, is that he wants to dwell in the midst of his people. He's establishing his presence in the midst of his people. That's the overarching theme of everything happening in the book of Exodus. And we're going to walk through that and see how this happens. So we're just going to start at the beginning of Exodus. We're going to go all the way to the end. So at the beginning, before God rescues his people, before he does that, okay, we know that this, we can talk about the story of Moses, right? So we'll kind of walk past the part where Moses is, is sort of banished from, from Egypt, right? 
the first thing that we see is God revealing himself to Moses. How does he do that? The burning bush. Cohen says the burning bush. Right. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Now Moses tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. So he led the flock to the farthest end of the wilderness, coming to the mountain of God, Horeb. Then the angel of Adonai appeared to him in a flame of fire from within the bush. So he looked and saw the bush burning with, it, with fire, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses thought, I will go now and see this great sight. Why is this bush not burned? When Adonai saw that he turned to look, he called to him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So he answered, Hineni, or here I am. And God said, come no closer. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. All right, I'm going to pause there. We're gonna, we'll continue on, but I'm going to pause there and just kind of think about this. Okay, so the, the, re, the revelation of God to Moses. Let's, let's start with this. What's the, the what and the how? Moses, or Cohen already, already told us, right? It's in, it says it in verse, in, in, right, right in here, in, in verse, let's see, two. In a flame of fire, right, from within a bush. That's kind of the what and the how. This is the way God is revealing through a flame of fire. Okay, where is he at? Horeb, right? Yes, the mountain of God. Okay, it's important to note where, he, where is he at. So, so what evidence, though, do we see that this is God? There. What, what does the scripture tell us? No consumption. The bush is not being consumed, so it's it's obviously supernatural, right? Something is happening there. There's a voice, right? He hears it, an audible voice coming out of a bush, right? Okay. What else? What does the voice say? He calls him by name, right? The bush is talking to him, and he says his own name. It's not God, it's not the bush, but it's the voice from the bush, right? Moses, okay? What does he tell him to do? Why does he tell him to take off his shoes? Because the ground is holy. Why is the ground holy? Because God is there, right? Because God's presence is there. He identifies himself to Moses too. What does he say to him about himself? Who, he, who is he? Yes, say that again louder, Asia. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right. That should sound familiar, right? How did God introduce himself right, to Jacob? He said, I am the God of your fathers, right? Abraham and Isaac. How did he introduce himself to, to Isaac, right? He said, I am the God of your father, Jacob, right? So he's connecting back. This should sound really familiar to us. He's, he's connect, and so when he does that, when he, 
when he says who he is in that way, he's not just connecting back to them, but we talked about this last time, that he, he made covenant promises with these people. Covenant promises that were about land and descendants and blessing. And, the, and he says to all, of three, all three of those men, he said, I will be with you. So even now, in this burning bush moment, and he's saying, he's saying this, he's saying, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's, he's already connecting now all of these things in Moses' mind, the land, the blessing, the promises of the descendants, right? And the I will be with you promise, this presence promise. He's already connecting it there. And so what does Moses do then? How does he react to that? He hides his face, right? Because there's this holiness in front of him. And he, he, can't, in, he can't stand. It's like it's too much for him. I think I, 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 don't, I don't like cast blame on Moses for doing this. I, I think I would do the same thing, right? Like, this is God in front of you. <laughs> how can you look at this? Like, like how can I be in this presence? He, he's so holy. It's, it's a natural reaction, but we, this is, again, evidence that this is God. God is there. Moses' reaction tells us that this really is God. But there's something different. Okay, this isn't how God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is not how God revealed himself to Adam. How did he reveal himself to them? You said gently, yeah, like in the form of a person. He walked with him. Mm-hmm. Okay. He appeared, though, in, in different ways, right? Sometimes we call this like a theophany where God appears as flesh, right? Um, and he walked with them. Um, in dreams, we know, he, he appeared to the, the, the patriarchs as well. But it's different now. Because now what we see, this is... This is what we're starting to see is the emergence of God revealing himself in all of his glory, the Shekinah glory of God revealing himself. Like there's, there's something different that, that God can reveal himself in the flesh covering of a man, right, that, that isn't his full glory. question was asked, did he appear to Moses differently because Moses wasn't raised with that, that same background? The, um, I would say he was raised in some way that way. You know, he was, he was raised by his mother, of course, until he was weaned, but then he was raised in the Egyptian household. So, but he was, he was, I think he was probably, he knew enough about his ancestors, right? The, so I don't, I don't think that it was, that he was 
that it, he was done, it was done differently that way with him because of that reason, because of how he was raised. I think it was that God, in his wanting to reveal himself, wanting to dwell with his people, he, he had to make sure that they understood who he was, who he is. Right? We see this, this way that God is revealing himself that's accompanied by fire, accompanied by smoke, cloud, or lightning. There's, we see this projection of holy space, like actual physical space around him. Right? We, we just, we, the burning bush. He said, take off your sandals because there is, this is holy ground. There's physical space around the burning bush that we see, and it's dangerous for people to violate it because God's holiness, and we'll talk about this later, is dangerous to us, okay? So something different about, like, when God manifests himself as a human that, and I can't fully explain this, right, how he can be human and his holiness is not as dangerous to us, but in his full Shekinah glory, it is. We can't handle it in, in, in our humanness. We, we begin to question ourselves, and, and Moses did. God gave him a plan, a task, and I will be with you, right? And he, he starts to question it. Look at, look at verse 11 in this chapter. I'll start reading in verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses is immediately, he's doubting, right? He's questioning this, this, he's before the most holy God, and he's afraid, and he's unsure, uncertain. And, and he says, and God said, I will surely be with you, right? He's repeating these covenant promises. You catch that? I will be with you. So that, so that, that will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What should I say to them? God answered, I am who I am. Then he said, You are to say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God said to Moses, you are to say to the children of Israel, Adonai, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I should be remembered from generation to generation. He says this, I am who I am. We should, we should immediately connect this to Yeshua. <laughs> when uh, he was talking with those who were wanting to kill him, <laughs> and and. And he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. He said he was God. Yeshua said he was God right there. He's pronouncing his name, who he was right there. It's not, not the point of my message, but I don't want to miss that. <laughs> you better connect that there. I am who I am. God's saying... He's connecting again to Moses, these promises, these covenant promises. I made these to the patriarchs, Moses. And, and here, if, if you're doubting Moses, if you're unsure, 
Here's the promise I'm going to make to you in addition to that. Here's the sign that I'm going to give you. Moses, you're here on this mountain with me right now in this burning bush, and we're going to go rescue these people. You're going to lead them, and we're going to come right back here. So when you come back here, you're going to know that it was me who brought you back here. Right to this very place. Right to this very mountain. He knows that. And, and, and Moses is like, yeah, I don't know, God. <laughs> and God's like, okay, like, this is my name. I am who I am. I am sent you. But that's really important when Moses says, talks about and he asks, about his name, okay? Because Moses isn't just curious, like, hey, what's your name, God? <laughs> He's not just curious about it. This is not just a curious thing, but to learn someone's name is establishing relationship. It's wanting to enter into relationship with them. So we should see this name, establishment of this name, and with this re- is an establishment of relationship with Moses. It's deepening that relationship with Moses. And this is going to go to the people too, but first it's going to Moses. And he's saying, I am who I am. I am has sent me, that he says to the Israelites. When God reveals his name, he's promising his relational presence there. And I think that's the first part I want to highlight to you in Exodus, that God is promising his relational presence there. I'm going to skip over a few chapters. We're going to go to chapter 6. We're in Egypt now. <clears throat> Pharaoh, in front of Pharaoh. But we see something about this name thing in chapter 6. It says, God spoke, for, this is in verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as El Shaddai. Yet by my name, Adonai, or the Lord, the yod heh vav okay? We don't know how to pronounce this. By my name, did I not make myself known? To, I did not make myself known to them. Okay, he says that he didn't make himself known by his name. He, something's different. He's revealing himself differently to Moses. The patriarchs experienced this, I am with you. They, they got that. They, they, they had this God in the flesh, theophany, walking with them. But they did not experience the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God the way Moses did. The fire, the smoke, the lightning, the holiness, all of this very powerful presence of God. It's dangerous too, but very powerful presence. But it's, it's so powerful, and so it required this holy space that it required precautions, right? We see veiling. We see distance required. We see removal of shoes before, before he goes in, to the, before the priest would go in, right? Or before Moses would go to the, to the burning bush. We see all of these things, and we see things like atonement for sin that has to happen before the priest can even approach the Lord, right? We're going to see all of these things the way that God is revealing himself to Moses differently. And he lets him know his name because he wants to be in relationship with him. It's just so important for us to understand this. So we talk about this holiness, right? And how it can be dangerous. You know who it's really dangerous for? The people who don't respect God. Who don't 
honor the Lord. In this case, the Egyptians, right? What do we see in these next few chapters? We see these Egyptians who are on the opposite side of God, right? The opposite side of God from the Israelites. Thirteen times it mentions the mighty right hand of God striking Egypt. Between Exodus 3 and Exodus 15, it mentions that 13 times. Like this, this visual image of God's hand striking, personally carrying out this punishment. And then we get to the 10th plague. What's the 10th plague? The last one, death of the firstborn, right? The 10th plague. In Exodus chapter 11 and chapter 12, it says, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son of Egypt will die. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I am the Lord. You know, when we, we emphasize this personal presence of the Lord, during the judgment, right? This is a personal presence of the Lord in judgment, okay? This terrifying presence of the Lord, but it, it is still God. We emphasize this during our Passover Seders. If you've ever done a Passover Seder with me, or here at Remnant of Israel, what do we say during the story? We say, and we, we talk about this, and it says, we emphasize that we say, I and not an angel. I and not a seraph. I and not a messenger. I myself and none other. It's God who's carrying out these judgments. The Egyptians were experiencing the powerful presence of the Lord in a really terrifying way it, because his holiness was destroying their gods and the gods that they were dependent upon, dependent upon the things that they worshipped. So we see both sides, the holiness that's a blessing and then the holiness that's at the same time dangerous. And so there's some, this physical space that we see establishing to keep the people you know, somewhat separated. Even though God wants to be with his people, his holiness is so powerful, they can't be in their sin, in their natural nature, in their nature they can't be directly with him. In Exodus 13, he leads them out of Egypt in verse 17, after, after Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, although there, that was nearby. For God said, the people might change their minds if they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the way by the sea of, by the, of the wilderness, but to the Sea of Reeds. And the children of Israel went, went up out of the land of Egypt. So we see God, it says God was leading them there. God was personally leading them out of the land of Egypt. If we skip down to verse 21, it says, it says, um, Adonai went before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light, so they could travel both day and night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never departed from in front of the people. So we see this picture of God here. Again, he's revealing his presence to the people. He's showing them to him themselves in a physical way. 
in, in fire, all right? Again, it's like going back to the bush. There's fire. This is the glory of the Lord in fire. We also see it as a cloud, too. So the fire by night, the cloud by day that the people can see. And he's revealing himself not just to Moses, though. This is really, really, really important. It's not just Moses who sees this, this cloud. This is not just like Moses' little personal cloud <laughs> or this Moses' little personal fire that's going around. The whole nation sees it. This is, I'm, I'm thinking this is up in the air somewhere, like very visible for miles probably. The, the people can see this. And what I'm, what I'm taking from this is God is saying that he wants to dwell in relationship with a whole people group as he's revealing himself to them this way. Okay? This is, so this has gone from a person to a people group. God wants to reveal himself to a whole people group to be in relationship with a people. And this is really critical for us to understand this. Because throughout the entire rest of Scripture, the narrative of God's relational presence is primarily through a group of people. Okay? It's primarily, I'm not saying it's entirely, but it's primarily through a group of people. It's not just through individuals. Okay? The, the power and the presence of God comes through the collective members of God's people. We see this throughout Scripture. I mean, we could, I mean, how many times do I preach on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and talk about the members of the body and the power and all of this that goes with it? God is working through the collective members of his people, not, not just individuals acting alone. So to kind of emphasize this point, I have a video that I want the, the sound booth to play that you might think initially is unrelated, but just watch it all the way through. When I was in uh, a particular country in East Asia a few years ago, one of our missionaries took me to a, a Christian bookstore in that particular closed country, and he said, I want you to look around, and I want you to tell me what you notice about the books that are on, on display here. So I did. I looked around. I saw books by John Piper, saw books by all, all kinds of people, people that I, that I knew. I didn't see any of my books, sadly, but, but I saw all kinds of books. There was Christian discipleship, friendship, money. There were all kinds of things. He said, my friend said, what do you, what do you not see here? And I didn't get it. But after a few minutes, he said, what you're not going to see here are books about the church. What you're going to see here are books about the church. And I said, why not? And he said, because the government of this country, this closed country, knows that if Christians are just individuals, they're not a threat. If Christians just care about their finances and their friends and their devotional life and their 30-day Bible reading and all the rest of it, they're not a threat. They become a threat when they organize because their allegiance is to a different king. That, that was when like, I was in... Uh, that was uh, Greg Gilbert. He's a Baptist pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, there, And this idea that he's speaking of about us acting as individuals versus acting collectively as the body is what I want to emphasize there. And how God, yes, he does work through us individually, but 
the goal is that we are acting together as a body. That that's where the, the power of God is truly magnified. When it's us acting together, not just, not just by ourselves, not just trying to work alone, right? I mean, we, we know this just even in a not very secular, non-spiritual way. How much more can we accomplish when we have a partner in a task? It's not usually just double. It's, it's usually magnified many times over when we can do that, right? Especially when it's a, you know, you're having to relay things here to there, right? There's, there's certain tasks that you just can't do alone in our natural life. And the same is said for the kingdom. We have to be acting together, and that's where the kingdom really grows. When the power of God is really magnified, when the collective joy of his presence is with all of his disciples, and we are all walking in the same direction together. And he's doing this, and he's revealing himself to Israel in this way. He's got the fire, he's got the cloud. And, and it is actually him in it. That's his glory. In, in Exodus chapter 16, if you go there with me, verse 9 and 10, Moses said, took the whole congregation, or Aaron took the whole congregation of the children of Israel. They looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, well, that's verse, yeah, that was verse 10, sorry. Yes, I wanted to start in verse 9. Moses said to Aaron, say to all the congregation, come near before Adonai, because he has heard your complaining. Okay, they're complaining about food. Okay, not, I'm not emphasizing that, but that's just the context. They're complaining about food. Moses says, come near before Adonai. And Aaron spoke to the congregation, and they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So we, we see this cloud, and it, we, we know, it says here, that this cloud is the glory of the Lord. It is God himself, his presence there with the people, with all the people. And I don't know if you remember, last time I spoke, I, I introduced this Hebrew word. It's, it's related to panim. I said it was lipne. Okay? This, is, this means before the Lord. This word leapne is right here. Come near before Adonai. It says leapne Adonai right there. That's a very, it's talking about the very spatial presence of the Lord. It's, it's very much, he is here and we are near him physically speaking. There is, there is a, a real direct presence of the Lord here. The text says it. And this is not just some like, pseudo-representation of God in this cloud. This is the holy presence of God, the real holy presence of God himself that he's delivering the, the Israelites through. They, they, uh, if, if, you, we, if we go back one chapter, we, we saw this deliverance happen, or two chapters, when he led them across the, uh, the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. I, I liked Joe's... Uh, what did he call them? Red Sea pedestrians earlier? <laughs> um, he, he led them through the Red Sea. He destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And, 
And we see then in, in chapter 15, Moses is singing a song. He's singing a praise to the Lord. Through verses 1 through 12 of chapter 15, or he's, he's singing a praise to the Lord. But then in, in verse 13, we see he kind of turns and he says, You, in your loving kindness, you led the people that you have redeemed. You guided them in your strength and your holy habitation. This is Exodus 15, 13. And then in 17, he says, You bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Adonai, that you have made for yourself to dwell in, the sanctuary, Adonai, which your hands have prepared. Moses is talking about God's most important goals here, to dwell with his people. He's saying it right there. You are coming to dwell with your people. He's singing this. This hasn't even happened yet. They just crossed the Red Sea. He's, he's dwelling with them in the cloud and in the fire, but they haven't even gotten to the mountain yet. They're just kind of on their way there. They're, they're just making progress. They're on the journey there. This is the middle of the Exodus still. And Moses is, is, is really prophesying in a way. And saying, we're, we're on our way to the mountain, and you're going to dwell with us, God. You're going to live among your people. Because that's what God wants to do. And that's what they're, where they get. If we, if we keep going to chapter 19, they get to Mount Sinai. All right? So God is established with Moses. And remember back in chapter 3, we talked about this. And he says, I will be with you. And the sign that I will be with you is when we... You bring these people back. These people will be brought back. I will bring these people back and worship at this mountain. That's the sign. We get to Exodus 19, and it happens. They're there. They're back at the mountain. God has fulfilled his promise. He's brought these people back to Mount Sinai. And he's encountering them with his very real and very powerful presence there. Like, big time... Like fire, smoke, earthquakes, his voice that they can't handle. But he's actually moving into their midst to dwell with them in, in the tabernacle and to travel with them. And I, I want to read verses 4 through 6 of chapter 19 just to, to talk about, because he kind of recaps what he did. This is Moses and God talking, God's telling him what to say. In verse 4, he says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you listen closely to my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all the people, for all the earth is mine. So as for you, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, these are the words which you are to speak to the children of Israel. And I just want to highlight that sequence. This is a really important sequence I want to highlight because it says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is God. What he did and how I carried you. God's highlighting what he did. He, he did this to the Egyptians. I carried you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. So all of these things I have done, now, if you keep, 
my covenant, if you do these things, Israelites, you, Israelites, will be my treasured possession. You, Israelites, will be for me a kingdom of priests. You, Israelites, will be a holy nation to me. He's making this covenant with them. This important sequence of events is, is this covenant he's making, but he's, he's tying this to his relational presence with them. He's saying, I brought you here myself, to myself. Verse 4 says that, I brought you to myself. And immediately he says, now if you keep my covenant. So he's, he's doing the same thing with the nation of Israel that he did with the individual patriarchs. He's doing the exact same thing. He's cutting covenant with them. And we, and we see this covenant being cut explicitly in chapter 24. I'm not going to read it all. I'm not going to read the chapter, but whole, the whole chapter of 24 at Mount Sinai is at Mount Sinai and they're cutting covenant where God is on top of the mountain. He's in the cloud. He's in the fire. Right? Moses, he gets the, the book of the covenant. He reads this to the people in verse 7. They agree to it. They agree to keep the covenant. Chapter 24, verse 7, it says, He took the scroll of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. Again, they said, All that Adonai has spoken, we will do and obey. Verse 8, what happens? He took the blood, Moses took the blood, and he sprinkled it on the people Behold, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which Adonai has cut with you in, in an agreement with all of these words. And then in the next few verses, 9 through 11, we see the elders. They go to the mountain. They have a fellowship meal with God. And then Moses goes up to the mountain by himself. He receives the, uh, the instructions for the ark there, for the, for the whole tabernacle, not just the ark. This place where God in, is going to dwell in his earthly presence. <clears throat> And that's where we, we start to see all of this. And I want to kind of focus on the tabernacle here, starting in chapter 25. Starting in verse 8, it says, Have them make a sanctuary for me. Why? So that I may dwell among them. So that I may dwell among them. You're to make it precisely according to everything that I show you. The pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings within it just so you must make it. All right, so set Hebrew word lesson for today. These are good ones. You should remember these, okay? They both start with M, at least in our uh, men, in, in Hebrew, <laughs> if you want to have an M, right? Uh, the first one is, is the word mikdash. Okay, everybody say mikdash. Mikdash and mikdash, what does it mean? It means sanctuary. Okay? So mikdash means sanctuary. Um, mikdash is a form of a Hebrew word that you probably know. Kadosh. What does kadosh mean? Holy. Holy. Good. So mikdash is a sanctuary, which is like a holy place. That's all it really means. It means a holy place. But in this context, this holiness comes from what? Or who, maybe? God, right? 
the holiness comes from God, right? So this is a, a holiness associated with the presence of God, a place, right, that has become holy because God is there. So then we have another M word, Mishkan. Say Mishkan. Mishkan. Mishkan is the word for tabernacle in Hebrew. Mishkan is the word for tabernacle. It, it doesn't come from kadosh, okay? Um, it, it's from a Hebrew, it's a noun form of a Hebrew word, shakan, okay? And it is often translated as to dwell. So the name of the tabernacle in Hebrew is to dwell, okay? So it's like sometimes we read um, in the book of John when we talk about the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, right? Dwell among us. We, these are used interchangeably here. The word tabernacle is to dwell. So when you think of the tabernacle, think of the dwelling place of God. The name tabernacle. So it's the mishkan. That's the tabernacle. Okay, so these are, these are important words to me to, to understand because it emphasizes that God was wanting to be dwelling, living in the midst of his people. Okay? Right there. Go to chapter 29 now. He's, they, we, we have all of this instruction about the tabernacle and how they're going to make it and how they're going to consecrate the priests. And toward, at the end of chapter 29, God is restating his promise to Israel. Verse 45, it says, So I will dwell among the children of Israel, B'nai Israel, and be their God. Then they will know that I am Adonai their God, who brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, so that I may live among them. I am Adonai their God. So in this, in this moment, he is he's just recapping. He's saying, this is the purpose. Why did I bring you out? I brought you out, I, this whole exodus, I brought you out so that we could live together. I could be with you, my people. The, the whole glory of God, the coming of God in his glory, in his holiness, is dwelling in the tabernacle right there. And he's, and he's doing it as a move to restore that close, intimate relationship that was lost in Genesis chapter 3. He's moving back in to be with his people. But yet, this tabernacle is, is sort of a shield, right? right? It's, it's, a, it's a way for the people to have, there's some level of separation still from the people. If we were to read the instructions about how they set up the tabernacle and where the people dwelt, there is a good amount of space there, physical space. Because, again, remember we talked about God's holiness is dangerous to those who are not sanctified. And, and, and we know that at, at a high level in Exodus, as we see as the people encounter the presence of God here on earth, it's kind of terrifying. We, we talked about this at the mountain, right? They, the, the people were scared, and they actually told Moses, they said, you speak to God, we can't handle it. It was too much for them, and there's this tension, right? The, like, there's God's 
transcendence, okay? God is transcendent. This, his otherness, like, oh, there's God there. I really, I, 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 we like the idea of God, but then when God comes in his presence, we're like, oh, I can't handle this. I like the idea, but I can't handle it. His, his, his imminence, his, he, he becomes flesh, or he becomes in his presence. His glory is there, and, he, and, he can't hand, and we can't handle that. So he gets some, gives some space there so that we can. That space becomes holy because God is there. And there's demands that are placed on those who would enter that space for cleanliness and holiness. And that's why we have the next book that we're going to cover, Leviticus. That's why we have it. Because he is talking about that demand for holiness in that space. We, we see things that happen here, right? There's, or, or that are required here. Veils, curtains, smoke, sacrifices, right? Cleansing sacrifices. We talked about them in our Torah study this morning. And these cleansing sacrifices. This whole sacrificial system, even. The boundaries, the holiness boundaries. Not just the tabernacle holiness boundaries, but we see them setting up holiness boundaries. If you read, in, again, in back in chapter 19 about those there's holiness boundaries set up around the mountain so that the people couldn't even go up right we, we see other things that happened too like they they said to purify themselves for three days ahead of him coming down coming to give the the the, the law from them okay so we we see all of these things so that god in his true holiness okay not just clothed by a, a flet, the, the flesh that he came and, and, and revealed himself to Adam and revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just like that, but in his true holiness, God wants to dwell with his people so that they can worship him. That's why he's dwelling there, so that they can know his holiness and that they can worship him, and he's giving them a way to worship them, to worship He's giving them an opportunity to do so. He's giving them an avenue to do so. And he's putting himself among them. And he's establishing a priesthood to help the people be able to worship him in a way that is not going to destroy them. That, that in, their, in his holiness, that they can approach him. Right? So what we think about when they go to Mount Sinai, right? A lot of times we just think about Mount Sinai and it's the law, it gave them the Ten Commandments, right? But that's not the whole point. He, they didn't just come to get the law. Yes, he did give them the, the law, the instruction, but he came and he brought them to Mount Sinai so that he could dwell in their midst, that he could fellowship with them, that he could bless them. But he gave them the law too, yes, so that they can approach him, so that they can come to him in his holiness, in his glory, and so that they can worship him. That's why he gave them the law. So that they could come and worship him. And he can live in their midst. So that covers most of the book, but I want to not ignore the golden calf. And what does that have to do with the glory of God and his presence? Go to chapter 32. <clears throat> now the people saw, this is in verse 1, 
Now the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, Get up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Break off the golden rings that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden rings that were in the ears, their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received them from their hand and he made a molten calf fashioned from a chiseling tool. Then he, they said, This is your God, Israel, which you brought up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw it, he built an altar for it, before it. Then Aaron made a proclamation saying, Tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next morning and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to make merry. I'm going to stop there just so we can kind of see the event, what happened there. And let's just think about that, right? What did they do? They made a, a cow, right? right. What, but what did they just get from the Ten Commandments, right? Go back to chapter 20, starting in verse 3. What does it say? You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make a graven image. Ding, 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 right? They're there. <laughs> or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or on earth below or in the water under the earth. I think a cow qualifies in there. Do not bow down to them. All right, violating that. And do not let anyone make you serve them. For I, Adonai, am your God. I'm a jealous God. I'm going to, I'll stop there. We can see they clearly violated, right? Very much, very clear, right there. God had just revealed his presence to them. I mean, in a magnificent, powerful way. And not just at Mount Sinai, but, I mean, you think about all the things he did in bringing them there to Mount Sinai. But, I mean, the powerful presence of God was just so obvious to them. And the people are like, nah, we'd rather our God be a little more docile. Something that, you know, we can see. How about a cow? Right? It, it sounds silly, but because you think about it, you're like, seriously, it's an inanimate cow. Like, it's definitely safe, right? It's not dangerous. It's not dangerous. Like, God's holiness, they know. They saw how powerful it is. They saw the holiness boundaries. They know that God's holiness is dangerous. And they, I think they're wanting something that's not dangerous. They want something that's safe. And they, they, they looked for it, and they found it in a, in a cow, right? Not dangerous. And, you know, I was thinking about this, this, this idea about God's dangerous holiness and the people's desire for boring safety. And I thought, two questions. This is kind of rhetorical. One, do you desire boring safety? in your relationship with God? Yeah, some of us do. It's, life is a, a little easier that way in some ways. But I was thinking about, I was reminded of, uh, and I apologize, two, week, two messages in a row, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis here. Probably many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You probably know where I'm going with this already conversation between Susan 
and Mr. Beaver, and they're talking about Aslan, and Mr. Beaver, what does he say? He says, Aslan is a lion. Okay, because Susan thinks he's a man, right? He says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. And Susan said, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God's holiness is not safe. All right? It's not. The people know that, and they can't handle it. They can't handle this all-powerful, all-holy God. They want a safe God that they can control. A cow, but they don't get to set the rules, and neither do we. In this case, their desires clearly violate the rules that God gave, and it rightly upsets God. And he is about to destroy them. Moses intercedes on their behalf. He goes back to God. He rallies the Levites, and they execute 3,000 Israelites. This is in, in chapter 32, 25 through 28. Moses goes back to God. He confesses their sin to, the peop- to God, and yet there's still consequences there. I want to read. Go to Exodus 33. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave, get out of this place, you and the people that you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Notice how God's language is saying, you have brought these people out of the land of Egypt. Right? It's not me, it's you. You brought them out of the land of Egypt into the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your seed. Okay? He's still keeping his promise, God is. But then verse 2 he says, I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Head up into a land flowing with milk and honey. But, but I will not go with you. I will not move in the, within the midst of you so that I do not destroy you along the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So there's consequences from the sin. These people rejected God. They built a golden calf. He says, I'm not going with you. I, I, I came here to live in the midst of you, and you don't want me here, so I'm not going to be here with you. He's banishing them from his presence, and that should sound a little bit familiar, right? Garden of Eden. The people were banished, Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. He says, yeah, I'll send an angel. He's going to help you out. He's going to guide you, but I can't go with you. My presence will not go with you. Because their sin won't allow it. The sin of the people won't allow it because you are a stiff-necked people, he says. I might destroy you along the way. His, his holiness can't be around their sin. And that, we need to understand this. The most serious and ongoing punishment for sin is the loss of God's presence. Okay? This is heaven and hell. 
eternity in the presence of God versus eternity away from the presence of God. Heaven and hell. At least in this case for Israel, it was temporary. They were being punished, and God was saying he's not going to walk with them. It was a protective measure too, though, right? He said he would, he, he would destroy them along the way if, if he went with them. He was trying to protect them and saying, I don't want to destroy you. You're still my people, but I, I don't want to destroy you. <laughs> you. You guys are going to rebel. You guys are so stiff-necked that my holiness is going to it's going to destroy you. It's too much for you. He was protecting them by saying, I'm not going to go with you. I mean, this is, this is not unlike, again, the Garden of Eden, right? There was a protective measure in God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden in the sense that it would be a curse on man to live in sin for eternity if they were to eat from the tree of life. That would be a curse to live in that way. So God says he's not going to go with them and the people react and they begin to they it says they begin to mourn. So we see this idea of repentance here, hearts of repentance from the people. And in in verse 5 of chapter 33, God says, "Okay, I'm going to decide what to do with you." And Moses goes back and he pleads with God again. In in verses 12 and 13, Moses said to Adonai, this is in chapter 33, you say to me, bring this people up, but you have not let me know, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found grace in my eyes. Now then I pray, if I have found grace in your eyes, show me your ways so that I may know that I might find favor in your sight. And consider also that this nation is your people. He's reminding God of who this nation is. <clears throat> so God backs off his, his threat. He agrees to continue. In verse 14, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, he answered. But then in verse 18, as they continue this dialogue, Moses says to God, Please show me your glory. Why, why would Moses ask for that in this situation? Why, does he, why is he, after all of this that has happened, and God finally, and he, he relents and he says, yes, I will go with you again. He's, he's being very graceful. I, w- I would tell you that I believe when, when Moses is asking God to show him his glory, he's saying, God, would you actively demonstrate God what you have promised you said your presence is going to go with us go with me and the people would you just show me what that's going to be like what that's what that looks like God and so God gives him a, at least a backside glimpse of his glory there um, he can't handle seeing his face but and then in verse 33 in chapter 33 verse 19 he says I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I, and I really think that in the midst of this, of God revealing his glory, he's saying, 
I've had mercy on you guys on this. I am giving you grace. I'm having compassion on you, Israel. I'm gonna, I am going to dwell with you in the tabernacle. And so, this is kind of some concluding good news in, towards the end of the book of Exodus, right? So we have this horrible golden calf that's in it, okay? It's, it's awful. And Moses is back again, continuing to go back to, to God and pleading with the people. And, and God says, yes, I will, I will go with you. And I will give you the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And yes, you can build it. So we see this crisis has been averted. And God's glory, his presence is going to go with the people. He's going, he's going to be with them in the tabernacle. And, and that's then when we kind of get into, into the book of Leviticus. Okay? And we're not, so we're not going to go there now. Um, but we know that God does dwell with them. They, it says, I'm just going to go to the very end chapter 40 of Exodus, the glory fills the temple. So I just want to want to read this, and we'll come to a close here shortly. So we can go get the kids if we're not already, uh, if, they're, if they're not already coming down. It says, then the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Okay, the tent's already been built. They finished the work. The cloud that was with them, remember, the glory of God dwelt in the cloud, the cloud and the fire, okay, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was unable to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud resided there, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Isn't that awesome? That God, his glory came down into that and to dwell in the midst of, the, in the midst of his people. He wants to invite them into his courtyard of his presence. He wants to live with them. He, he allows them to camp right at the foot of his holy mountain. And he allows them to be surrounding him as he dwells in the tabernacle in the midst of the camp. And he calls them that he would, they would be his holy nation, that they would be a priesthood. Right? We see this repeated in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Right? That you are a holy priesthood. He gives them... His holiness is what gives them priesthood status. His holiness, dwelling with them as a nation, is what gives that to them. And the point here is not about the function of the priest, necessarily, but it's about the relationship. That they had access to God. That they had relationship. They could go to God. They could be made holy and cleansed and go to Him. And we have that same today. We have the same access to God today. And so the, the emphasis on my message today and as I'm continuing this series is God's relational presence and how important it is. Again, not just because it makes us feel warm and wanted and ah, you know, it's nice, right? But it's because God created us to be this way. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to know you. He wants us as a people, okay? I'm not just talking about an individual relationship here. I'm talking about a collective body of Messiah relationship, all of us together, that we can't, we can't isolate by ourselves, but we need to be together as a people, as a body, and understand that God's relational presence is the center of all of what we do within the body of Messiah. Amen? All right. I'm going to close there.